I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings, and specifically, we're going to be looking today at chapter 15 and verses 16 through 24 as we consider the, the latter part, part two, we might say, of the reign of King Asa. As you do that, I'd, I'd like you to be thinking about something, and that is this. Uh, there are so many times when even Christians, people who confess Christ, people who say they're following his will, when even Christians say to themselves when faced with a dilemma, I have to, or corporately, perhaps even more commonly, we have to, and then they list something that goes against God's law. They say, in essence, I have to do evil, the good might come of it. So, for instance, we might say to ourselves, I, I, have, to, I have to cheat on this test in order to, to pass it so that I'll be able to, to go on to a good college or get a good job. I, we have to be open on Sunday or our business will fail and my family will, will suffer. We have to lie on an application or we won't get the job and won't be able to provide for our family. Uh, I, I have to marry a nominal Christian. It's the best I can do. I know this person isn't very faithful, but I'm never going to get married otherwise, and I, I need to do that. Uh, we, need to, we need to add things to worship sometimes, even churches will say, because otherwise people will not come and worship with us. We, uh, have to, we have to ordain female officers, or the world will, will think we're bigots and turn away, or sexists, rather. We have to ignore church discipline or we'll drive the people out, and it goes on and on and on. We say we have to do these things. We have to, we have to, and then we list something that God says specifically don't do and say, I'm sorry, we have to do it. The good might come of it. Well, we're going to see a little of that, unfortunately, in the end of Asa's life and be able to reflect upon an occasion of it within our own society and the terrible results of that. But uh, before we come to the Word of God, let's go to the God of the Word. Let's ask for his blessing. Please do join me. God, our gracious Father, I, I ask now, Lord, that you would be the light of our minds. And I pray particularly this day, Lord, that you would help us to remember that uh, the things that Asa was subject to, both good and bad, are the things that we are concerned with as well. We know that he was a man after your own heart. And I pray, Lord, that the majority of the people here would be like that that they too would be men and women and children after your own heart. But I know, O oh Lord, that we are subject to wandering. We are subject to all sorts of evil, pragmatic thinking, saying to ourselves, I need to do this, and then adding something sinful. Help us to remember that and help us to be uh, calling ourselves to account even as we hear. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. First Kings, chapter 15, verses 16 through 24, I do remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Now there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. And Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and delivered them into the hand of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as there was between my father and your father. See, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Come and break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. 
So Ben-Hadad heeded King Asa and sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. He, act, uh, he attacked rather Ijon, Dan, Abel-Beth-Ma'aka, and Chinneroth with all the land of Naphtali. Now it happened when Baasha heard it that he stopped building Ramah and remained in Tirzah. Then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah. None was exempted, and they took away the stones and timber of Ramah, which Baasha had used for building. And with them, King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. The rest of all the acts of Asa, all his might, all that he did in the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. So Asa rested with his fathers, and was buried with his fathers in the city of his father, uh, city of David, his father. Then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One of the things that I, uh, I really enjoyed studying when I was doing history, and I'd been studying it since a young boy, I was raised on war movies, was World War II. Um, most people are probably aware of it, but the critical year of World War II, the turning point in that conflict, was 1942. Now, of course, at the time, the Allies did not realize that. Uh, it had looked pretty good, actually, for their enemies, the Axis powers, up until that year. In Russia, for instance, Hitler's armies had raced all the way from the borders of the, uh, the German section of Poland all the way to the very gates of Moscow. And then in 1942, they turned south. He wanted to grab uh, uh, Russia's giant oil fields in the Caucasus. So all they had to do to do that was overcome one stubborn city on the Volga called Stalingrad, and it would all be theirs. In the North African desert, meanwhile, Rommel had been beating the British back all the way to Egypt. And all that he needed to do now was to defeat the new British commander of the 8th Army, a man by the name of General Bernard Law Montgomery, and seize a city in Egypt called El Alamein, and he would be able then to go on and take Cairo and even the Suez Canal. And if he could take the Suez Canal, the Axis forces could cut off the supplies that went to India, for instance. And that was critical because the Japanese, meanwhile, who had, of course, attacked Pearl Harbor in 1941 and then had rampaged throughout Asia, they'd taken Burma, Malaya, Indonesia, Singapore, Hong Kong, the Philippines, Guam, Wake, all of the Allied possessions in the Pacific. They'd taken half of China, most of New Guinea, and they were set to polish off even Australia. All they needed to do to do that was defeat the American carrier forces by springing a trap for them at a minor island halfway in the Pacific called, not ironically, Midway. But, of course, in all of those locations, El Alamein, Stalingrad, Midway, the Axis powers would go on to suffer terrible defeats defeats that they would never recover from. And their initiative from that point onwards in 1942 would always be gone. It would always be then the Allies' war. Their power would be retrograde from that point onwards. Sure, there would be setbacks for the Allies, but the Allies would never once again be defeated and pushed back. But 
the Allies didn't realize that. And there was one particular sector of, of the Allied involvement in World War II, which was very important to the British, that was the, the bombing campaign uh, against Germany. Uh, it was very important to them because Britain had no forces on the European continent. Stalin was constantly screaming, do something to relieve the terrible pressure on our people. Millions of, 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 of us are dying. And so Britain decided that the way that they could take the war to Germany was by bombing German uh, places. And they had initially started the war operating in the daylight, and dropping leaflets, believe it or not, urging the Germans to surrender. Surprisingly, the Germans didn't respond to the leaflets by surrendering. Who knew? Uh, instead, they shot down the British bombers that were dropping leaflets. And so the British rethought this and said, perhaps it might be better if we dropped some bombs. And they went after first German warships and then very difficult targets to hit. And they found that if they bombed during the day, the Germans came up and they shot them down because the British didn't at that point have long-range fighters. So they turned to bombing after that, things that were a little easier to see. They went after centers of production and supply, factories, oil depots, rail yards, and so on. <coughs> even though they had very little success in doing that. British precision bombing in 1942 was largely non-existent. And usually the safest place was to be the actual target in a British bombing raid. Now, all of this, believe it or not, up until a, a certain point in 1942 was still within the framework of what Christians would call just war theory which said that enemy combatants, people who were engaging your forces in, in war, and the things that actively supplied and supported those forces, they were legitimate targets in war. But unfortunately, as I said, the British just didn't have the fighter cover in Germany. Uh, they carried little or no armor because they needed to save weight for gas and bombs. It was a very long journey. And by 1942, the Germans had developed perhaps the best fighter defense system in the world. They would detect the British bombers coming by radar, and then they would send up night fighters. And more and more of the British bombers were being shot down. They were becoming catastrophic, and they weren't succeeding in their goals of knocking out German centers of production. So, out of frustration, the head of British Bomber Command, a man by the name of Sir Arthur Harris, he became known as Bomber Harris, decided we're going to switch over to area bombing. We'll send what we call pathfinders to just a city. We'll drop flares in the center of the city, and then we'll send over bomber streams. We'll try to put as many bombers as we can over the target, and we'll just flatten that particular city. And so what they did was they swung, uh, swung over to bomb loads that were mostly incendiaries, two-thirds of them. These are fire bombs. They would essentially drop from the plane, and then they would start fires. They would also contain, they would contain blockbusters. These were bombs that were designed to smash open buildings. They were designed to rupture gas mains and water mains and so on, fill the streets with rubble to make it very difficult to fight fires on the ground because what they wanted to do was start what was known as a firestorm where you create a, uh, essentially a, uh, a tornado of fire that would suck in everything around it and burn out these very cities. 
Harris justified this by saying, well, you know, the cities contain centers of production. If we burn the city, the center of production will burn with it. Also, we'll get rid of all of the homes of the workers. They'll be unhoused and so on. And, and here was his main point, he said, civilian morale will plummet and Germany will sue for peace. Now, the fact that the British, when they were blitzed in the same kind of way in 1940 and 41, had not sued for peace, but their resolve had stiffened, uh, didn't seem to occur to him. But at that point, it became very obvious that civilian populations were being deliberately targeted. This was no longer what we could call collateral damage in any sense. And they knew when they started this campaign that civilian losses would eventually be catastrophic. And at that point, Christian war theory essentially went out the window. And people, including the men who were tasked to fly these missions, began to express reservations. They knew that they were deliberately targeting at that point houses and people, men, women, and children. In fact, the first thousand bomber raid on Cologne also brought other catastrophic losses to the world. The Cathedral of Cologne, which was a medieval wonder, was destroyed. Ten other historic buildings, irreplaceable, were gone, and of course hundreds of civilians lost their lives. And yet that was a very minor raid compared to the later raids, like the firebombing of Hamburg that would happen next year. One clergyman had the temerity to actually say publicly, in a classic English understatement, Quite a number of RAF boys are seriously perturbed by what they have to do in this matter of district or area bombings. They were becoming perturbed. These perturbations were leading to nervous breakdowns and things like that. So in an attempt to counter this, Harris found a sympathetic vicar who wrote a pamphlet for him entitled The Gospel and Bombing, which actually argued, yes, they knew that civilians would be killed by bombing, but he argued it would end the war more quickly and ultimately save lives. And wasn't that what Christians were supposed to do? In response to this, this rather specious argument, another British clergyman publicly described the pamphlet as the bombing of the gospel. And regardless of this back and forth amongst Christians, Harris's campaign continued to the end of the war. And the firestorms that were started in various German cities, particularly Dresden, claimed the lives of somewhere between 400,000 and a million civilians. And not just Germans, but of course all of the slave laborers who had been pressed into service in German cities and so on. But we might stand back at this point, and in fact people did, and say, uh, don't you understand? <laughs> war is hell. All's fair in love and war. You can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. Or the Germans started it. And they bombed cities, didn't they? And after all, whose side are you on in this? And there is no end of arguments that can be made, brothers and sisters, to do the wrong thing if we say that our goal is ultimately good and right. And yeah, defeating Nazi Germany, absolutely it was a good and right thing. Even many of God's people who were under pressure back then and of course in the time of the Bible, they answered the question, should we do evil, the good might come of it, with a decisive, yeah, probably, yeah, 
Actually, yes. I, I think we should do evil. The good might come of it. But brothers and sisters, that's not the teaching of the word. Not at all. Sadly, as we read in 1 Kings 15, King Asa was one of those people. Now, we remember, of course, that Asa, as we go through this, and this is very important, Asa was not an unbeliever. Asa's heart was not absolutely turned towards wickedness. Not at all. We were discussing yesterday at the presbytery, we asked uh, one, uh, one of the candidates for ordination uh, if he could talk about the fourfold state of mankind, and that's the, the, uh, the way that man's heart has changed decisively throughout the progress of, of um, salvation or salvific history. So, of course, in the garden, man was created upright, so his heart was, he was, uh, it was good, but he was, it was possible for him to fall. So therefore, it's passe peccare, possible to sin. The next state, of course, is non passe non peccare, which means not possible not to sin. After man fell, his heart was turned irretrievably, well, retrievably perhaps by God, but irretrievably by his own efforts towards evil. And then finally, in the state of redemption, the state that I hope most of you are sitting in the church in at the moment, is it is passe non peccare. It's possible not to sin, but, you have to forgive me, sometimes my Latin gets very rusty, but at the same time, if it's possible not to sin, even for the Christian, it is possible to sin. It's possible for us to compromise on what we know is right. And we read here, that although Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David, and we remember he removed pagan idols, he started a reformation, uh, and even though it was incomplete, and he didn't remove the high places where Jehovah was worshipped contrary to the commands of the Lord, uh, we remember nevertheless Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days, and yet, and yet Asa still compromised his faith. He still did things that were plainly wrong. But it's also important to remember that it wasn't always the case that whenever there was a question between should we do something right or should we do something wrong, and he was under pressure that he immediately buckled and did the wrong thing. As a matter of fact, in 2 Chronicles 14.9, we read about how in a time of war, Asa trusted the Lord magnificently. I'd like you to turn ahead, if you will, to 2 Chronicles 14.9, because you remember 2 Chronicles also tells the story of the kings of Israel. Uh, one of the things that we noticed in the difference between Chronicles and Kings, Kings is mostly concerned with whether or not the king in question followed the commandments of the Lord in matters religious. But Second Chronicles gives us more information about how they lived their lives and how they followed the commands of the Lord in things like war. So we read, starting in verse 9, then Zerah, this is Second Chronicles 14.9, Then Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Maresha. So Asa went out against him, and they set the troops in battle array in the valley of Zephatha at Maresha. And Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. So the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled 
And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them to Gerar. So the Ethiopians were overthrown and they could not recover for they were broken before the Lord and his army and they carried away very much spoil. So in a time of great pressure, in a time when he was faced by an army of a million, Asa had done the right thing. What had he done? The first thing he did was he turned to, not rhetorical, God, there you go. He turned to God. He cried out to him. He said, it's nothing for you to help. It's, it's easy for you. It doesn't matter whether it's a million men or a hundred men. It's equally easy for you to assist us in this. And the Lord heard his prayer, and the Lord ended up destroying the Ethiopian army. But fast forward many years in Asa's rule, and we come to his conflicts, his ongoing conflicts with the king of Israel, Baasha. And Baasha had once again invaded Judah, and he began building this fortress called Ramah, a fortress city that was on a strategic point that would cut off trade to Jerusalem. They would essentially be isolated from all contact to the north. They couldn't get food, they couldn't get supplies, they couldn't trade, and Ramah was only nine kilometers north of Jerusalem. Having been to Israel, you look at the country and you see very quickly how easy it is to cut off major centers because of how narrow the, uh, the area is. So what does Asa do? Well, unlike previous times, this time he does not cry out to the Lord for help. Instead, Asa responds to this terrible threat by doing exactly what the Lord had forbidden. He sent messengers to Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, and he asks him to do something wicked. He asks him to break his covenant with Baasha and make a covenant instead with him. And in order to do this, what does he do? Well, first he goes to his own treasury. These, this is the, the, the treasury of the people of God in one sense, but the king's treasury filled with gold and silver, and he gathers it together, but it's not enough. So then where does he go? He goes to the temple. He goes to the offerings that were made for the upkeep, the repair of the temple, for the purchase of those, those sacrifices and so on, for the paying of the Levites who attended there, for the buying of provisions for those who ministered to the Lord, and he ransacks them as well. He takes all of this and he sends it off to Ben-Hadad. And Ben-Hadad, receiving it, is very happy to play one kingdom off another because ultimately he wants to conquer both of them. So he listens and he attacks Baasha. And as a result, Asa is able to not only stop the building of Ramah, but he's able to take then those materials. He enlists everybody in the kingdom and he says quickly, we're going to go and we're going to snatch the materials that were being used by the king of Israel to build his fortress city Ramah. And we're going to use them to build our own defenses. And he builds these new defenses. Now, interestingly enough, the defenses that Asa built in Mizpah have been uncovered. And they, can, uh, they show how decisively these fortifications were turned northward now to face Israel. And they were designed also to hold off assaults by chariots. Massive, massive new works that were made possible by stealing the enemy's materials. But although this seemed to work to his advantage... Ultimately, this massive compromise that he enters into doesn't work to his advantage. What happened? Well, the king of Syria proceeds to attack Israel, and he claims part of its territory for himself, 
And so, ironically, Asa ends up funding the hostile takeover of part of the promised land, which is not good. Not only that, by weakening the northern kingdom now, he had made them less of a, a stopgap, a buffer from the Syrians and anybody to the north coming and attacking them. He also had impoverished his own kingdom. He'd impoverished also the temple. And not only that, the Syrians would thereafter always be a highly fickle, highly changeable thorn in the side of God's people. And more than that, the Lord let Asa know, this is wrong what you've done. And he let him know that it would have bad consequences. Now, not in 1 Kings. If we turn once again to 2 Chronicles, though, we go ahead to 2 Chronicles verse, uh, or sorry, 2 Chronicles, and then chapter 16 and verse 7. We're going to read how the Lord informed Asa that what he had done was wrong. 16 and verse 7, yes. So Second Chronicles, and here I am in First Chronicles. They're different. So once you finish turning there, we read this. Hanani, at that time, and at that time Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly. Therefore from now on you shall have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison. For he was enraged at him because of this. And Asa oppress some of the people at this time. Note that the acts of Asa, first and last, are indeed written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So it refers them back to what happened at the end of his reign. So that was the, the first major compromise that we read about in this section. There's another compromise, though, that's only addressed very lightly. When he got sick in his old age... We read in First Kings that he was, he was uh, sick in his feet, diseased in his feet. But in Second Chronicles 16, 12, we read, And in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was severe. Yet in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. Now, there's been a lot of, it's interesting, I, I read a bunch of commentators who were trying to figure out what was this disease in his feet. Uh, a lot of them, the old, the old explanation was that it was gout, which is a tremendously painful disease. The Babylonian Talmud says that it's like having a needle in raw flesh. But other commentators have said, no, this is more probably diabetic gangrene or a vascular disease uh, where the, uh, uh, the peripheral arteries are, are blocked and the ensuing gangrene eventually kills you uh, because they say this, this disease of his feet killed him within two years. So it probably was, was something gangrenous. So what do we read? That at the end, although Asa was a man of faith, by his compromises and his failures to depend upon the Lord, what did he do? He robbed himself of blessings. The prophet makes it very clear. Had you called upon the Lord, the Lord would have answered you. Had you trusted in him instead of trusting in the king of Syria, you would have had good things. 
and it wouldn't have been the case that war would be with you constantly afterwards. So he robbed himself of that blessing. Also, in his compromises, when it came to, to only trusting in the physicians and not turning to the Lord and asking his help in that matter of his own health, he possibly robbed himself of several years of life. Now, I want to get immediately to applications to this. We can, brothers and sisters, do the same thing that Asa did. We can be faced with a crisis, and even if we have depended on the Lord before and done the right thing, in that particular situation we say, no, this is too difficult for God, at least that's the way we're thinking, I have to do something he says is wrong. I'm going to have to, I, I know the only way that I can succeed in this venture is to sin. I, I, just, I just have to. But often we will realize or have it brought to our attention that we have compromised. We have sinned. And when that happens, when you are told you are sinning and going against what the Lord has done, you're compromising, you're thinking, I'm, I'm doing something evil that good might come of it, what should you do when somebody tells you you've sinned and you know in your heart of hearts and from the testimony of the word you've sinned, what should you do? Repent. Stop. But so often we say no, and often the reason that we do it is simply out of pride at that point. We become stubborn. I have no doubt that when Hanani addressed the king and told him, in the same way, you remember Nathan had come before David, and he did his, his, his beautiful you are that man speech, where he pointed out his terrible sin with Bathsheba and how he had killed an innocent man, Uriah. David, of course, his response at that point was to be broken inwardly and to say, I have sinned, and then to repent. Asa doesn't do that, though, does he? What did he do? He had a nanny locked up instead. I'm not listening. Similar thing happened during the Second World War. It actually became very clear through internal documents that the area bombing campaign was not helping to win the war. By 1944, that was absolutely clear. The American strategic bombing campaign that went specifically after uh, factories, for instance, factories producing ball bearings and oil production, that was working much, much better rather than the area campaign. But they wouldn't change. A, a clergyman by the name of George Kennedy, Alan Ball, he was the Bishop of Chichester, actually stood up and doing this in a time of war in England. Now, this was a man who was an anti-Nazi. He was very patriotic, but he became more and more disturbed by the area bombing campaign. He actually stood up in the House of Lords, and he delivered a speech asking them to reconsider. In 1944, he said, I fully realize that in attacks on centers of war industry and transport, the killing of civilians, which is the result of bona fide military activity, is inevitable. But there must be a fair balance between the means employed and the pur uh, purpose achieved to obliterate a whole town because certain portions contained military and industrial establishments is to reject the balance. He was suggesting that just war theory was no longer being followed. He was pilloried as a result of it. He lost the ability to become the Archbishop of Canterbury after the war because people remembered his speech, but what he was saying was true. Rather than switch over, Bomber Harris continued out of pride, saying that eventually he would crack Germany. It became his determination that he would force them 
to surrender prior to the Allied armies reaching Berlin, which of course didn't happen. And the firestorm attacks in Dresden in particular, which killed 25,000 over a period of three days, uh, they were appalling. They appalled the world. People finally began to say, enough, even Churchill said, this is, this is wrong. And after the war, as Britain saw the, the total devastation of historical sites and cities throughout Germany, they were so ashamed, they didn't award Bomber Command a campaign medal. They were the only British service that did not get its own memorial at the end of the war. And that despite the fact that Bomber Command suffered the highest losses of any part of the British war machine. Uh, it's staggering. 51% of Bomber Command aircrew were killed. Could you imagine if the US Navy had suffered 51% casualties in the Pacific? Half of all the sailors who were sent out, more than half of all of the sailors who were sent out. It got to a point where, where aircrew knew they were never going to finish their their particular number of missions, and yet those men still went out night after night because they were told this is the right thing to do. You're winning the war this way. My mother's cousin, Noel, was one of the men who died on those operations. His bomber was severely damaged over Germany, and they crashed on landing, and the bomber blew up. Incidentally, if you ever really want to scar a child, then do what uh, my cousin's mother did to my mother. Uh, on Noel's last leave, uh, he'd asked her very little girl for a kiss, and she refused to give it to him. No! So he went off, and he died on that mission. And later on, her mother said, I blamed you for rejecting him. Uh, it's a terrible thing to do, but I digress. Regardless, it doesn't matter what the size of the error is. It doesn't matter how much your pride needs to be swallowed in order to stop. It doesn't matter what has to happen, turning around and, and admitting mistakes and errors and sins as David did with Bathsheba, possibly being exposed to the world. When you are exposed and your heart is convicted that you're sinning and doing wrong, stop. For heaven's sake, stop. You end up robbing yourself and hurting other people when you continue on in a compromise, even when you say this is a good end. It is a good end to win a war against Nazi Germany, yes, but there are certain things that Christians should not do to do that. For instance, we pride ourselves. Churchill stayed his hand that we did not torture prisoners unto death during the Second World War to get information, although it would have helped us strategically. <laughs> the Axis powers didn't restrain themselves. And at the end of the war, the Allies remembered that, of course. You, when someone comes to you in the name of the Lord and names your sin, how do you react? How should you react? You should react with repentance, but oh, so often we will not because of the cost. That's the first application. Second, we notice that even the good kings, Asa, and the Bible is, is wonderful. It's a, alone amongst the ancient documents in recording the, the sins, really, of these kings. The kings would leave their own records behind in, in foreign nations, and they were always, the, the gods were always with me. I always did right. I was always victorious. Always, always, always. Perfect. In every respect, the Bible isn't like that. It tells us 
this king did wrong, this king did, this king did not worship the Lord, he was not loved by God as a result, and so on. It shows us that even the best of kings in Israel and Judah, well, there were no good kings in Israel, scratch that, all the best kings in Judah, even they were sinners. Even their best works were flawed. The only perfect king is Jesus Christ. And he alone has the power to help us in our times of need, our greatest need. He's the only one who can break down our, our sinful idolatries. He's the only one, of course, who can save us from our sins. And we are taught throughout the word, therefore, beginning and end, Old Testament and New Testament, to put our trust not in men, not in princes who will compromise and do the wrong thing, but ultimately to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I note this as well. Having said Asa was a man who compromised terribly, we need to note this. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. He desired nonetheless to live for God. You and I will never serve the Lord perfectly this side of glory. And sometimes that failure and the, the reflection, there are times that we sin and perhaps nobody else even knows about it, but it weighs upon us. And we say, how can a sinner like me ever possibly please the Lord or enter into glory? We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that our acceptance with the Lord is not on the basis of our perfect works. It's on the basis of Christ's perfect works. It is in those moments when we are, we are crushed by the weight of our own sins, once again, the devil coming and accusing us, that we know that in Christ there is forgiveness and there is acceptance, that we can go to him no matter how prodigal we've been, that we can return. Never be so stubborn that you not only do not repent of the sins that you've been committing, but that you don't flee back to Christ and ask him for forgiveness. Asa went to heaven, compromiser that he was. It doesn't make what he did in compromising good, but it shows us, brothers and sisters, that the standard that you are called to is not your own perfection. The standard you are called to is Christ's perfection. And if you are in him, a sinner saved by grace, you have salvation through God's forgiving grace. I love what Phil Reichen wrote regarding this, and I'll read this as the close. He says, this is the only hope that anyone has. Our salvation does not depend on our service for God, but on his grace in accepting us as we are through the perfect kingship and atoning death of Jesus Christ. A true heart is a heart that trusts in the forgiveness that God offers to us in Jesus Christ. We cannot deny our sin. Nevertheless, our Savior can give us hearts that are true to him in all our days so that afterward, when we are laid to rest, we will be gathered to Asa and all our spiritual fathers in the eternal city of David's son. That is my great hope. I pray it's your great hope as well, for I know that I have fallen short in so many different respects. I have been a compromiser myself. My hope, therefore, has to be in Christ. And I look forward to that day when I will see David, Asa, Abraham, Jacob, Paul, James, Peter, John, and every other sinner saved by grace. Let's go before the Lord and ask for his blessing. God, our Father, I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to have humble hearts, that we would see what happened to Asa and know that we're prone to it as well, that when we do compromise, we would turn from that compromise and we would seek to follow you thereafter.
I pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember that our own entrance into heaven is not dependent upon our own works, and that the only thing that ultimately we add to our salvation is sin. Help us, therefore, to trust wholly in Christ, to lean upon him, and to strive to walk with him, taking up our cross daily, dying to self. And, oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you that while we are but branches, he is the vine, and in him, oh, Lord, we are capable of walking. We pray this in Jesus' holy